0: Bible paints such a realistic picture of our heroes of the faith. And why is that worth mentioning? Well, because it stands as another validation of the divine inspiration of the scriptures. And that's something I'm going to spend a little time on here this morning. I want you to again be reminded that the scriptures truly were breathed out by God. This is not just any other book that you're reading, that we're studying. It is alive and active It's powerful. It's God's book. Now, we've talked at length here before about some of the ways that we can see the marks of God's fingerprints, if you will, the marks of divinity on the scriptures. How do we know the book is actually inspired by God? It bears his fingerprints, we like to say, or it bears his markings. We've talked a lot about that. We've talked about, well, what are some of those signs? Well, prophetic fulfillment, right? There are things that the Bible predicted correct Hundreds of years beforehand stuff with very very precise uh, Predictions Things like Cyrus the Great Cyrus the Great was predicted by name more than hundred and fifty years before he was born It was predicted by name what he would do how he would do it Hundred and fifty years before he was born by name. That's pretty good Josiah the boy king was predicted by name along with what he would do 300 years before he was born Those are some some fingerprints of the divine inspiration of this. This is not like any other book. Um, Daniel predicted that Alexander the Great would come and conquer and have a a huge kingdom and that his kingdom would be divided four ways, but it would not pass on to his heir. That's incredibly specific. More than 200 years in advance. We've talked about a lot of those things. We've talked about scientific foreknowledge. In fact, we talked about a little bit of that this morning in uh, equipping hour. Right? We said, for example, the book of Job talks about the universe expanding, something we did not know scientifically until 1929, less than 100 years ago. The Bible gets right something like 3,500 years ago. Yes, there are marks of divinity in this book. It's not like any other book. In fact, that's why it has the name it has. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So before we get too deep in any of all that, there's actually another mark of divinity that I want you to see when we're talking about Genesis and we're talking about our heroes of the faith. And that is how accurate, how unflinchingly accurate the record is of our heroes of the faith. The Bible doesn't just record the good stuff they did. It records with painstaking accuracy their faults and failures too. And that is absolutely a mark of the divinity of this book. So before we get too deep into that, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. Lord, I ask, use me as a mouthpiece today to encourage and edify your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. May all that's said and done today bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. For you alone, Lord, are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name we ask. And all God's people said... Amen. Amen. Okay. Like I said, if you weren't here on Wednesday, Randy began talking about the five solas. And specifically, sola scriptura. You remember the five solas? Sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Sola fide, which means faith alone. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Christo, or sometimes sola Christus, which means Christ alone. And soli Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And how did those come about? Well, there was a protest. There was a protest against what was going on. And so the long story short is the formulation said it is the scripture alone that forms the highest authority for all of Christian life and faith. And because of that, we can say that a person is saved by faith alone, sola fide, through grace alone, sola gratia, in Christ alone, not in Christ plus works To the glory of God alone. So Sola Scriptura tells us that the scripture alone is the highest authority for the Christian. It's not the scripture plus another book. That's how cults work. Oh, yeah, we like the scripture, but you need this other book too. No, the scripture is the highest authority and there's not another book that's on par. I'm not saying we don't have other books. Obviously we do. But those books are not on the same level as the Scripture. And as soon as you say that they are, e.g. Book of Mormon, etc., you have created a cult. It's not Scripture plus the Pope's decrees and rulings. His word is not on the same level as the Scripture. My word is not on the same level as the Scripture. No man's word is on the same level as the Scripture. The Scripture alone is the highest authority. And it's not Scripture plus tradition. Am I saying traditions are bad? Of course not. Traditions can be very good, but traditions can also be wrong. Well, how will we know if a tradition is wrong? The scripture, sola scriptura. Scripture stands as the highest authority for all Christians in matter of life and faith. It isn't the only authority in life and faith. Don't misunderstand me, because this is a straw man that Roman Catholics like to make. Oh, you Protestants, you just think that the Scripture is the only authority for you, huh? No, that's not what we're saying at all. There are obviously other authorities in our life, other God-ordained authorities in our lives. But they are not the ultimate authority. We are saying those other authorities do not eclipse the Scripture and. Not only do they not eclipse, they don't rise to the same level as, which is what Catholicism wanted to say. Well, we got the Scripture, but we also have the Pope. No. The Scripture is final. The Pope is human. None of those sources of authority, and there are other sources of authority in Christians' lives, but none of them outranks the Bible. What are some other sources of authority in a Christian's life? Well, Christian tradition, the elders of your local church, Parents, civil magistrates, there's lots of different bosses, but what we're saying is that none of them can match the scripture, none of them. The Bible alone is holy, and here's the term, God breathed, Theopnos. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus plainly stated God's word is truth. And then prayed we'd be sanctified by it. You will not be sanctified just by your own carnal efforts. You will not be sanctified by tradition. You will not be sanctified by... You'll be sanctified by the Word. Knowing the Word and living it out. That is how you'll be sanctified. And Jesus said it plainly in John 17, 17. Psalm 119, 160 declares that the entirety of God's Word is truth. And every one of His righteous judgments endures forever. We forget that God is unchanging. He doesn't change Nor do his decrees. Proverbs 35 through 6 says, every word of God proves true, and he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I was reading through, I like to read through different English translations just to see how they put things when I'm getting ready for a sermon. And I was reading through the new NASB 2000, I thought, well for sure I'll probably like this one. Nope. I got into 2 Timothy 3.16. And when it gets to 3.16 and 17, it says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's how I've learned it. I've grown up on the New King James, so that's how I've learned it. But in the NSB 2000, it says that every man and woman of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Because, of course, it's not proper just to say man. Well, that's adding to the Word of God. I don't like that. It is true that in that sense, man means humankind. But I don't like adding to it. Why? Because you could be rebuked and found a liar. That's why. 2 Timothy 3.16 declares that all of Scripture is indeed inspired by God. I want you to see that today because you're going to see a handiwork of that in chapter 30 of Genesis. So turn with me if you want to. 2 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to go through this just real quickly. And then we're going to get into Genesis chapter 30. Notice this. 2 Timothy 3.16 says... All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's a very, very important statement. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So it tells us what's right, what's not right. How to get right, how to stay right, That's a real, real easy, like way to remember it. Note also here is the scriptures that make the man of God complete. Why are you making that distinction? Well, because there's a segment of our populace that truly believes it's God's word plus something else. Well, you really want to be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work? You better get that seminary education. Okay. You better read these other books. There's this other canon. It's like an additional, it's like the Protestant Apocrypha. There's these other books. They're really good books and you need to read them. My Sproul books, and my MacArthur books. And my and Well, those are all good books. Don't get me wrong. But those are not the book that's going to equip me for every good work. I'm not trying to poo-poo mouth some of these. I have a seminary education. I learned a lot of really good things in seminary. I'm not trying to say seminary is not a good thing. But I'm saying you can get through seminary and not even be born again. Well, if that's the case, you're not equipped for every good work. Now, what I'm saying is this book, this word, is what will equip you for every good work. Knowing God's word and walking it out. That's what also qualifies a man for ministry, knowing God's word and then living it out. If you're not walking it out in your life, you don't know the word as well as you think you do. I mean, that's what Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy tell us, right? About the qualifications for men, for ministry. Back to the point at hand, though. God's word says that all scripture is inspired. What does that mean? The Greek word being translated as inspired in this passage is actually theopneustos. And it's probably a word that Paul himself coined. It's a compound word. The first part of the word theo, theop. Theo is the Greek word for God. It's where we get words like theology, right? Theology. Ology means the study of, right? Like biology, the study of life. Bio means life. Theology, the study of God. A theologian, ostensibly, is someone who studies God. Not always. I get that. But that's what the word means. What about the second part, though? Pneustos. By the way, it is panustos. Pneustos. And if we were really pronouncing it correctly, we would say things like pneumatic. There are actually no um, there are no silent letters in Greek. We only make them silent when we start ripping them off and using them in English. So we'll say things like pneumatic, and it starts with a P, right? Tsunami starts with a T. Well, that's because originally these words came out of Greek, and they were not silent. So what does it mean, though? Theo means God. Pneustos, the second part of the word, comes from the Greek word for breath or wind, or spirit. The pneuma. Why is that important? Because it means, it is saying, this book is literally <sighs> breathed out by God. It's not like every other book. Pneuma is where we get words like pneumatic. Pneumatic is a machine that's driven by air, right? Uh, a pneumatic drill or a pneumatic air uh, wrench, an air wrench, right? What is it driven by? It's driven by the air that flows through it. What is this driven by? What were the men who wrote this driven by? The spirit that was flowing out of God and through them to pin this. So the Greek word theopnustos literally means breathed out by God. The point being made here is twofold. Number one, the scripture has dual authorship. What makes the Bible so special and unique among books? Well, other books don't have dual authorship. I thought about that this week. Actually, I can't say that. Because I actually think there are books that are literally demonic. And in that sense, they would have dual authorship as well. But there's no other book whose dual author is literally God himself. It has dual authorship. It has an inherently dualist nature. There were men who wrote the Bible. That's true. But those men were being inspired by God. Only the Scriptures are inspired by God. That's what the Scriptures say. They stand out from any other book and any other writings of men. And that's why we protested in the 1500s to say, No, Mr. Pope, your word is not as high as the Scripture." <clears throat> because by that point, I'll say it, and everyone can get mad at me later and call me a bigot, but by that point, the Roman Catholic Church had become one of the largest cults on earth, and it still is today. And if you will look up the definition of a cult, which is wide-ranging, authority, powerful, central leader, go down all the, all, just check off all the boxes and tell me how Roman Catholicism does not escape. Now, everybody's going to be mad at me for that. But that's true. And the Spirit of God was saying to people of the day, come out from among them and be separate. And they did. At the risk of their lives often. So even though the Bible was written by men, those men were being moved by the Spirit of God. He was the one superintending their writing in such a way that everything written down by them in the canonical writings was without error. Notice that I said in the canonical writings. I had someone ask me this question. They said, hey, if we discovered a writing of Paul or Peter or John today, would it be added to the Bible? That's a good question. Answer, no. Why not? It's non-canonical. Peter and Paul and John, just because they were apostles, does not mean that they were always perfect, or even that their writing was always perfect. They were human. They erred. But in the canonical writings, the closed canon in the canonical writings god was superintending what they were writing so that it was indeed error free why am i bringing all of this up because skeptics like to claim the bible is simply a book written by men it's just another book written by men well it is true that the bible is in a sense written by men obviously all books are i love turning that around on the skeptic oh it's just a book written by men you can't trust it cool how about your textbook How about your favorite author? Trust it. Interesting. But our contention as Christians is not that the Bible is a book written by men. It's not just a book written by men. It definitely had human authors, but it had a dual authorship as well. Just like a pneumatic wrench is moved by the air in it, God was moving in these men. They were the tools in the hands of the master craftsman to accomplish what he wanted written down for future generations. No, the Bible is in a class all by itself. Since it's the only book that is God-breathed. In fact, because of that, we contend that only the scriptures are holy. That's what we call it. We call this book the Holy Bible. What does Bible mean? Biblia, book. Literally, when you say, I've got to go get my Bible, you're literally saying, i got to go get my book. And not to be too nitpicky, but it's actually an anthology. It's a book made up of other books, right? It's like, it's like a miniature library. But why can't we just call it the Biblia? Why is it the holy Biblia, which you could see if I didn't have so many things taped onto the front of my Bible? Why is it the holy Bible? What does it mean to be holy? Well, holy means to be set apart. It's not like everything else. It is a holy book. It's a book unlike every other book. It's set apart. It's in a class all by itself. And that's the point being brought out in 2 Timothy. The Bible wasn't simply written by a big group of ordinary men writing from the natural understanding they had in their head or the feelings of their hearts. They weren't just writing some natural, normal, common document. They were writing down what God's Spirit was literally breathing out, what he was inspiring. The Truth and Grace Baptist Catechism puts the issue this way. Question, who wrote the Bible? Answer, holy men inspired by God. That's a really succinct way that's really easy for little kiddos to learn, and my kids have learned. And it's accurate. It's exactly right. So what does that have to do anything with Genesis? Well, quite a lot, actually. You see, when the Bible presents us the stories of our heroes of the faith, like Jacob, it does so without polish or pomp. We see the great things they accomplished, but we also get to see their great failings. We get to see the things that they didn't do right. That if they were the ones writing the book, it would have been left out. If it was simply a man-made book, then the men who wrote it would leave out the parts about themselves that didn't paint a very flattering portrait of their life and character. Abraham would leave out the part where he lied about his wife and got rebuked by a pagan king, don't you think? Sarah would leave out the part where she laughed in mockery when God said the promise and then lied about laughing. Isaac would leave out the part where he followed in Abraham's footsteps, lies about his wife, gets rebuked by a pagan king. Don't you think they would leave those parts out? Noah would leave out the part about him getting drunk. Samson would leave out his womanizing idolatry. Gideon would leave out his cowering in fear. Moses would leave out his murder at the very least. Elijah would leave out his doubt and his depression. Peter would leave out his fear and failure. No, if those men were the ones writing it and those men alone, all of those things would be left out. The point is the scripture retains all of those failures of our heroes of the faith precisely because it is God-breathed. It's a good witness to the divine nature of scriptures. This book is not just written by men. Those heroes of our faith are presented very realistic portraits. And Jacob here, chapter 30, is no exception. We see Jacob Warts and all in this chapter. And the same goes for the rest of his family. And yet, in the midst of all the strife and the chaos, there's a sovereign God who's making beauty from the ashes. There's a loving God who's weaving his work of grace and redemption, even through all of the dysfunction, the brokenness, the wreckage of his family. That's the hope. And that should give us hope, my friend, because you have plenty of brokenness in your life, too. Whether you'll admit it or not, whether you'll talk about it or not, you do. You have plenty of places where you've made a mess of things on account of your own sin or your own selfishness, and so do I. And the beauty of the gospel is that God is able and willing to weave his work of redemption, grace, and here's the big word, restoration. Even in the midst of all of that. Remember that I told you a common recurring theme in Jacob's life as well as yours? Is what I call the frankenstein complex Right remember that frankenstein in in that uh, book by mary shelley Frankenstein was the scientist that was terrorized by a monster of his own making Well, that can happen to you and me too And it can happen to jacob It's quite common that the monster that terrorizes us the most is one of our own making one made from our own sin our own neglect our own disobedience, or our own selfishness. Yes, you, my friend, are sinful. And yes, because of sin, you are broken. And yet, yes, he's still well able to mend the broken pieces and to make beauty from the ashes. So I implore you this morning, look to Christ. Now, All that being said, turn with me to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. We're going to start at verse 25, and I'm going to very quickly run through the first 24 verses. We went through this last time. Remember, Jacob is now married to the two daughters of Laban. The youngest is Rachel, whom he loves. And then there's Leah, who he's really not overly fond of. He served seven years for Rachel and was then tricked into serving seven more on behalf of Leah. So as he's serving his time... Children are beginning to be born to him. (coughs) And we will see a budding rivalry between Jacob's sister wives, Rachel and Leah. Jacob deeply loved Rachel, didn't love Leah. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and so the Lord decided to give Leah children. Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then stops bearing children for a while. She thinks she's done entirely. Rachel sees that she's not bearing any children of her own. She gets really jealous of her sister. So she gives her maid to Jacob as a wife so that her maid could have children on Rachel's behalf. Not a great idea, but it was common. So Jacob takes Rachel's maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and she immediately becomes pregnant with a son who will be named Dan. And after that, she becomes pregnant again with another son named Naphtali. At this point, Leah becomes jealous of Rachel because of Bilhah's two boys. So she decides to fight fire with fire. She gives her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob as a wife. So that Zilpah can have children on Leah's behalf. So uh, for those keeping track at home, that's now four wives for Jacob. Zilpah becomes pregnant with a son who will be named Gad. After that, Zilpah becomes pregnant again with Asher. Then Leah's firstborn son Reuben finds some mandrakes out in the field. Now listen, Reuben couldn't have been very old at this point. He he must have well he's obviously much younger than even 13. The the longest amount of time it would even be possible for all of these children being born was 13 years from start to finish. Okay? So Reuben was not very old. But in that culture, if you were old enough to go out and basically if you're old enough to walk out into the field, you're old enough to work, right? He could have been eight, maybe ten years old, something like that. He goes out to the fields, and he finds some mandrakes. Remember that? And like the devoted son that he is, he brings them back to his mom. Remember, I told you in those days the superstition was that mandrakes could help a woman get pregnant. So Rachel finds out that Leah has mandrakes, and she desperately wants to get pregnant. Remember, at this point, she still has not gotten pregnant yet. So Rachel cuts a deal with Leah for some mandrakes. The deal is that if Leah will give Rachel some of the mandrakes, Rachel will let Leah have Jacob for the night. If Jacob didn't know anything about it being used, he does now. Leah agrees to the deal. She goes out and meets Jacob in the field and says, I've hired you with my mandrakes. I'm sure that was news to him. Like, what? Yep. Yep you mind tonight. Leah agrees. Rachel gets her mandrakes, right? Jacob spends the night with Leah, and Leah becomes pregnant with Issachar. Meanwhile, Rachel does not get pregnant from the mandrakes. Her scheming, the scheming on Rachel's part didn't work out real well for her. Go figure. After that, Leah becomes pregnant with Zebulun, and after Zebulun, Leah becomes pregnant with Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. She finally becomes pregnant, and she bears a son named Joseph. And that brings us up to verse 25. So turn there with me. Let's finish out this chapter. Verse 25. And it came to pass, when Rachel had born Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I might go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know my service, which I have done for you. That really is saying quite something, because Jacob doesn't have anything of his own at this point. He has his family, but he's basically just been a hired servant. He doesn't have anything in the way of possessions, and still he's like, I want to go back to my home country. Kind of a way of saying, I am done putting up with your shenanigans. I'm out of here, pal. Jacob's got a large family of his own, four wives, 13 children. His work has been highly productive on Laban's behalf, which he's about to say, but he wants to get out of here. Laban said to him, Please stay, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I have learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. So he knows, Laban knows, God has blessed him on behalf of Jacob. Jacob, because you're here working, I am blessed. I am actually the benefactor. I'm, the, I'm benefiting from this arrangement. You know, that really should be the... Um, the hearts posture of any employer that has a bunch of Christian employees. I mean, if we work the way we should work, which is honest, hard, our employer should benefit by having Christian employees. Now, the problem is there's a lot of employers whose hearts are way too hard to even take notice of that. In fact, they might just take advantage of that. <coughs> but it's true. We should be blessings. We should be honest. We should be respectful. We should live with honor. We should work with honor. Laban says, I've found by experience the Lord has blessed me because of your sake. 28, and then he said, name your wages and I'll give it to you. So Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you and how your livestock have been with me. For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. And now, how shall I also provide for my own house? I don't have anything for my own home. i got nothing. I've made you rich and wealthy. You've got great herds, and i got nothing for it. In fact, he could have gone on. He didn't. He could have said, you cheated me into seven extra years. You've broken your word to me at every turn. You've deceived me every chance you've gotten. But he didn't. He held his peace, which says something about his character. It's growing. Under Jacob's care, a relatively small number of animals has greatly prospered and become a great multitude. Laban's become quite wealthy on behalf of Jacob's tireless and faithful work. And so he says, <clears throat> well, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you don't have to give me anything. You do this thing for me. I will again feed and keep your flocks. Okay, I'll, I'll watch things just like I've been doing before. And then I'll pass through all your flocks. Removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And these will be my wages. I'm going to take these oddly marked animals. That's going to be my wages. Here's Laban just being Laban the pagan again. 33, Jacob goes on to say, so my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats or brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it's with me. In other words, if these, these livestock have normally colored offspring, you keep them. And if you find any of them in my herd that are normally colored, you can take them. We'll consider it stolen. You can have it. And Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, sounds like a good deal to me. And what does he do? Just acts like Laban. That day he removed the male goats that were speckled and spotted. All the female goats. Oh, you remember the ones that were his wages? That's what he's removing. Every one that had some white in it, all the brown ones among the lambs. And he gave them into the hand of his sons, and he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. How about that? Jacob is saying, we've got a mixed herd. Part of this herd is just normal color, just straight white, straight black. And part of this herd is kind of speckled and mottled and streaked and grizzled. And I'll take those. Because in his mind, this herd is going to breed together, right? And some of the goats are going to come out normal colored, and some of the goats are going to come out speckled and spotted and streaked. And some of the lambs are going to come out normal colored, and some are going to come out spotted and streaked. And Laban goes, sounds like a good deal to me. He takes all the streaked and spotted, all of the ones that would be Jacob's, and he says, oh, they're my son's. You get to watch my flocks. That's just the ones that are solid colored over here. So, your wages? Good luck. Man, if there weren't a sovereign God watching over him, he would really be in for it. But he's not. Here's Laban being the deceiving manipulator again, and so Jacob is now only feeding and caring for the solid-colored animals of Laban's flock. If you, if you would, you can put it this way. He's starting from ground zero, <clears throat> again, after being deceived by his father-in-law, again. No idea why he'd want to go home. But remember, there's something of a secret weapon at play that old Laban didn't quite get figured into the calculations, but God did. Remember how the men of the area water their flocks? You turn back to Genesis 29, you'll find out they all bring their flocks to the well together. Because there's this one well, and they have to roll the stone off the top, and they've got these troughs set out all the way around this well. And so all the flocks come, and they water them all together. And Jacob realizes, this could work. He realizes, wait a minute. If I take my sheep, these solid color sheep, and I go to the watering trough and I can somehow get the bucks, the males in the other herds interested in breeding, I still have a chance. It's true. So what's he do? Well, he sets to work at that very end. Verse 37, now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, and he peeled white strips in them, and he exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, that is the watering troughs, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. Now listen, this word conceive is... it's. It works. It's not a perfect translation, but it works. It, it actually is the, a Hebrew word, which means to, to be hot, to get hot. In other words, to go into heat. That's what we call it, right? When animals like sheep or cattle or dogs are fertile to be bred, they are interested in breeding, they will stand for bucks to mount and all that stuff, and we say that's going into heat. And so what he was saying was, He's putting this stuff in the water when these animals are about to be in heat so that he can get them to, when they come to the watering trough, he can get them to breed there. He doesn't want them breeding back home where it's just solid black or solid white. I'm trying to get these other bucks and these other herds interested. So the rods which he peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters and the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive or come into heat when they came to drink. And by the way, that, that makes sense. There's a variety of plant chemicals that we have found today that can affect the libido and reproductive cycle of animals, including humans. So it seems that Jacob knew about some of that as well, which makes sense. He's been around this herding his entire life. He probably knew a trick or two. So the flocks conceived before the rods. The flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. Why would he do that? Well, if they're facing the other guys, what is the rest of the herd seeing? The back end. Which is what a buck in heat is interested in seeing. He's smart about how he does this. He's a smart guy. He puts his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived or went into heat, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters so they might conceive among the rods. In other words, when the stronger animals start coming into heat, he goes, these are the ones that I want being bred by these streaked and spotted and mottled bucks in these other herds. So he takes them down and puts the rods in and gets them bred. And these strong, vigorous, good livestock are now bringing forth the kind of offspring that he gets to keep. Smart. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So in other words, when the feeble ewes or the feeble females are going into heat, he's not worrying about it. He doesn't want their offspring. He lets them breed at home. Hey, Laban, you can have them. We'll let the bucks that are already in this herd breed them. We won't worry about it. So when the stronger of the flocks came into heat, Jacob puts the rods in, breeds them. He is able basically to take those offspring. When the feeble females come, he lets Laban have it. 43, thus the man become exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. And We're going to actually find out in the next chapter. It wasn't because of Jacob's smarts. It was actually because the God of Jacob saw how Jacob was being treated. Jacob's going to have a dream in the next chapter, and God's going to speak to him and say, I've seen the way that Laban's been treating you all of these years, and because of that, when you went down to the watering hole, I made sure it was the streaked and the mottled and the spotted ones that were breeding. I've seen how you've been mistreated. And I'm the one that's taking back. I'm the one that's making it right. Why? Because you decided not to take back for yourself. I've seen the way you've been mistreated. And I've decided to handle it. Christian, it's the same God that's watching you. You don't have to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will repay. God is in one swift stroke. Giving Jacob exactly what God had promised before Jacob was ever born. And at the same time, meeting out the judgment that Laban's actions deserved as well. The God that you serve is well able to do that. You do not need to take vengeance of your own. You're watched over, loved, and protected by a much higher power. The God of Jacob. We will find out in the next chapter that Laban still changed Jacob's wages ten times even after that. If the flocks were bearing predominantly spotted offspring, Laban would come out and say, No, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm going to take the spotted from now on. You just get the streaked. Guess what would happen as soon as he made that change? All those lambs started bearing streaked. And he would get upset. No, 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 I'm going to take the streak. You, You get the speckled. And all of a sudden, all of those lambs would start being speckled. Ten times he did that. The problem is, Laban thinks, I've got to outsmart this Jacob guy. And the problem is, you've got to outsmart Jacob's God. The problem for Laban is not Jacob's smarts, it's God's sovereignty. And even though Laban kept changing Jacob's wages, the Lord was watching over it all and making it so that Jacob grew wealthy all the same. Let's close this out with this reflection and reminder. Christian, the Lord sees all we do, whether good or bad, and he will recompense it too. Have you been mistreated by an employer or a family member, a friend, a neighbor? Confidant, don't fret. The Lord sees it. Still walk with your integrity. The Lord sees it. Have you mistreated an employer or an employee or a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a confidant? Guess what? The Lord sees that too. And since the Lord sees it and the Lord will recompense it, you don't have to worry about taking vengeance. You can simply bring it to the Lord in prayer, knowing that He cares for you. You can cry out to Him knowing He sees it all, and He is perfectly just, and He's going to make it right. But what if it's you that's on the other side? What if you've been the Laban? I'm sure none of you have ever been the Laban. But I have once or twice. What if you've been the one who's Dealt wrongly. In what? Well, then admit your guilt. I'm sorry, I've done you wrong. Look to Christ for forgiveness, and then go and make it right with those you've done wrong. I'm not saying I'm not arrogant now, but you didn't see me at twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. I was much worse then. And there were guys that I played college football with that I was an absolute arrogant butt to. And after I got born again, I really got convicted about that. And I thought, man, I do not want to go talk to these dudes. I don't particularly want to see these dudes again, to be honest with you. They don't like me. I don't like them. I'm just going to let this go. And I could not get away from it. The Lord just kept convicting me about it. All right, Lord. So I go and find these guys. A lot of them, social media was just coming of, of age of the day, so I could look them up on there. And I start emailing them and writing letters and stuff and just saying, hey, I just want you know, I, I found a couple of them, phone numbers. One guy I ran into at Walmart. Was so creepy. I'm in the parking lot feeling really, really convicted about this guy. And I'm like, you know what, Lord? Real nonchalant, thinking I can get out of it this way. You know what, Lord? If I run into him. I'll apologize, but I'm not going to see him because he's moved off. He's like three states away. Well, I forgot his parents still live in Ada, and I go into Walmart just thinking nothing of it. And who do I run into? I walked over to him, and I I could tell he's trying to figure out: Is this who I think it is? And if it is, why is he coming over here? You know? And I'm like, Hey, man, I know it's been a long time. Probably don't remember me, but I remember you. I mean, I remember you, Wilson. Man, I just want you to know, I'm. I've been really convicted. You know, uh, I gave my heart to the Lord a while back, and I've just been really convicted. The Lord's really convicted me about the way that I, man, I, the way that I acted towards you, the way that I treated you, the way that I talked to you. I'm sorry for that, man. Just want to ask you if you'd forgive me. And I, I, it, he was flabbergasted. And what I found out was this, my willingness to be able to go and admit my guilt actually gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with this guy. Why are you saying this? Because Christ has changed me, man. I know what I did was wrong. I had an opportunity to share the gospel. So what do you do if you're that guy? Have you cheated someone else? Have you mistreated someone else? Go confess as much apologize, then make it right. And when you're doing so, tell them why you're doing so. It's Christ who convicts me. It's Christ who compels me. And then invite them to come know this very same Christ that's changed you. Folks, admitting to our own false failures and sins is not only the first step to restoring our fellowship with the Lord, it's often the first step toward restoring our fellowship with others. If we would hope that those who have abused and hurt us would repent of it, then we must start by doing the same. We need to find those that we've hurt, that we've mistreated, that we've done wrong, that we've alienated, and truly repent of it. We've got to be the first ones to admit our faults and failures and make it right where we've broken it. Honestly, it may be the first step to seeing revival in their hearts or even revival in our land. So Let me close with a little piece from... The New Testament, 1 John 1, 6 through 9. If we say we have fellowship with him and continue to walk in the darkness, we, do not, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. How do we have fellowship with one another? By admitting our sins, repenting of them, turning to Christ and letting him change us. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we find true fellowship with one another? How do we have the right kinds of relationships even amongst ourselves as Christians? By confessing and forsaking our own sin. When we've been like Laban, by confessing and forsaking and admitting it, owning it, May God give us the grace to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, give us the grace to forgive those who have treated us wrongly and hurt us. If we have been like Jacob and had a Laban in our life. But Lord, also, please give us the grace to own up to when we've been the one being Laban. When we've been the one hurting and wronging others. Give us the grace to confess and repent of our sins. Give us a willingness to make it right with those that we've wronged. Give us forgiving hearts. Let us look to Christ and find in him the grace to forsake our selfish ways and to live in a manner that's consistent with our Christian testimony. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.